Just look at the fintech companies who've gone out and raised money by pointing at, shooting at, making fun of what traditional banks, you know, boring banks do. Eventually, they seek a bank charter themselves. Look at Block, Jack Dorsey's company. You know, they sought a thrift charter, which is a, a, a type of bank charter. There's several, Vero and others, because what you inevitably find in the financial services world is there is much benefit to being a bank. You just don't have to run it the way your grandfather's bank was run. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. All right, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. We just got done saying how you probably got into banking about as backwards as possible. So let's just go straight into it. How did you get into banking? Yeah, a bit of background because to say that I had no experience in banking would not be totally accurate. I grew up in Clinton, Oklahoma, uh, 90 miles west of Oklahoma City, and my dad was a lawyer, a rancher, and had also invested in a small bank uh, when coming out of the RTC, when when banks were failing in the in the late 80s. And I did work as a teller there for three days in high school. So that's when I graduated <laughs> high school, I considered myself um, steeped in, in banking. Um, but as far as for this turn of events, man, that's, you know, I went to Baylor University, Baylor Law School, went to work at a big law firm, a great place, um, and was there for three years and was around some really great people. It's just, I had an entrepreneurial bug. I've said many times that lawyers should be detail-oriented and risk-averse, and I wasn't naturally either one of those things. And so I was in a Bible study on Friday mornings with a gentleman named Carlos Sepulveda, who was the CEO of Interstate Batteries, uh, has been a mentor to me uh, for many years now, and processing with him the idea of leaving the practice of law and starting my own business. And he thought I had what it took, even though I didn't really have a business plan. And he took my wife and I to dinner with his wife and agreed to put up some money to give us a one-year runway to go figure this out. And so March 5th of 2006, I left and started Triumph. Zero intention of being in the banking business, more of a real estate-focused um, business, working on distressed multifamily assets, which little did I know we were on the cusp of what was going to be, you know, in my lifetime, at least the biggest distortion of markets that, you know, really it started towards the end of 07, of course, 08 and 09, anyone who lived through it remembers what that was like. And we had bought a few real estate assets. We would raise money, buy the loan that was in default, foreclose, clean up these multifamily properties and then sell them. And it was, in, and we did well. Um, the problem was it was a carcass to carcass business model. And I didn't fully appreciate that. And so, What's that mean? 
Well, we didn't have a management company. So when you buy an asset that is in deep distress, there's not a lot of cash flow coming out of it, if any. And I needed, I had two young kids, I had hired people. And so we were, we were real estate investors without an operating platform to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And so when you would harvest a gain, then you would use that to live on. But what was going to be your next trick? And then when Lehman failed, everybody became distressed at investors. And me at the age, you know, at that time of 28, I didn't have the track record to go compete with real distressed debt investors. I was raising money deal by deal. And so I, my idea was, you know, there's blood running in the streets. The most contrarian of all moves would be to go buy a bank. And that a bank well run should always generate cash flow. And they're also a great investment vehicle. Um, and, and if you believed that what we were gonna see in 08 and 09, excuse me, was going to be a repeat of what we saw in the RTC days, the Resolution Trust Company Corporation when, when a lot of banks in this part of the world failed. If you had a bank, you would be able to aggregate assets either through acquiring banks or through asset sales. And so I went to Carlos and my other mentor, Chuck Anderson, and said, um, I think I wanna go buy a bank. And they <laughs> said, well, do you think you can do it? And I said, I don't know, but I think we should try. And they're like, well, we're betting on the jockey here. So go for it and let's see how it turns out. And so that began a process of looking at banks and you don't just look at a bank, like there's not a, a co-star listing or whatever, <laughs> you know, there's, you don't go to the MLS and, and find <laughs> banks. I mean, you can find data about banks, but if you're not in the industry, you don't, you know, people aren't going to take calls from a 28 year old of, Hey, you want to sell your bank to me? So, but through providential connections and just, and also wearing out a lot of shoe leather, we ultimately um, found a bank in Dallas. It was about 250 million in assets, which is very small for a bank. It was in a serious amount of distress, probably in danger of failing. And I think they were desperate enough as an ownership group for an outside injection of capital that they were willing to entertain someone of my age coming to them saying, I'd like to buy your bank and I'd like to clean it, you know, clean it up and turn it around. And so we um, agreed to that. Now, unlike a real estate deal, when you agree to buy a piece of property, you can pretty much guess what your timing will be between the signing of the agreement and the actual closing. Like there are controllable, knowable factors. When you're talking about a bank with a B-A-N-K in it, that means the government is highly involved or specifically the FDIC is highly involved in that process. And so what I didn't understand at the time, and I think had I known going in how tough it was gonna be, I'm not sure I would have taken the risk, but from the, shake, from the handshake deal, there was nine to 10 months of, you know, I don't wanna be crude, but what felt like a proctology exam and just silence. The FDIC was kind of busy. They were closing down WAMU and Wachovia and others and getting them to pay attention to this proposed CEO of a $250 million bank in Dallas who was putting together a new control group and didn't have the money raised. It just, it was not, it was not making it to the top of anyone's email inbox, but we just stayed after it. And um, finally, 
we and and again you've asked one question and i've just launched in here but i guess this is this is it. how this goes yeah so there's a fairly uh if you're around triumph a well-known story um i was watching money go out the door every month i figured we had three maybe two two to three month window of operating capital left and then there was nothing right i had borrowed all i could borrow we weren't generating any income because we were totally focused on buying this bank. My investors, you know, the the seed guys who'd been in the deal, you know, I'd put in all they were going to put in. And I went to and met with Carlos and Chuck and I said, um, hey, guys, have gotten no update from the FDIC on when or if they're going to approve this application. And I feel like that I've rowed this ship out to sea and I don't see land in front of me. And I know we can't row backwards. We can't get back to shore. So my plan is to keep rowing until the oar breaks. And I think I said that and it sounded brave, but I didn't feel very brave. You know, what I wanted them to say is it's going to be okay. And um, instead, Carlos said, you know what, Aaron, Um, you may have called a play that you just can't run. And how awesome is that? And I said, not awesome. I, I don't, I fail to see one awesome thing about this, Carlos. I got three young kids and I got people depending on me. He's like, look, you're not going to starve. Now that idol of significance you have about being viewed as a successful young businessman or that idol of security you have around having this much money, those may get smashed to pieces, but I'm not going to let you starve. But this may not be okay because this isn't kindergarten. This is real life. You called a very strategic, difficult to run play and, and we may not get there. But you're going to persevere through this. And I left that meeting. I didn't feel good, right? It, it, I'd love to tell you I walked out of there and was like, yes, that's right. No, I felt like <laughs> I felt terrible. But about 30 days later, we get a call on a weekend night, like a Friday night at 7 p.m. from the FDIC, which just does not happen. And this case manager, I think, had taken pity on me. He's like, hey, I want to let you know your name came up today and they're going to not object to you, they don't ever approve anything. They just don't object. They're not going to object to you taking control of the bank. How quickly can you close? (laughs) Well, we haven't actually raised the money yet, right? Because it's hard to get investors in that time frame, especially when money was actually worth something to be, um, it's hard to get investors to stay committed to you when you cannot give them a definite closing date. And I said, look, 30 days. If we can have 30 days, I'll gather. And we needed to raise $45 million, which was a significant amount of money. Um, It felt like Mount Everest to me, frankly. And from there, we started an absolute sprint to go back and see all the people I had been seeing for the last year, telling them about my idea to say, hey, this is actionable. Will you, are, are you in and for how much? And wore out Southwest Airlines between Dallas and Midland because a lot of our original investors came from Midland because guys who've made their fortune putting holes in the ground are are willing enough to take a bet on a 30-year-old, right? They just, they think about the world differently. They didn't need to see a fancy proposal and case study because I didn't have it. Yeah. And so um, on the 11th hour and 59th minute, at least how it felt to me at the time, on November 5th, 2010, uh, we closed on the bank. We had raised, we were required to raise 45 million. We raised $45,200,000 from 45 different investors. Largest investor was four and a half million. Smallest was $50,000. 
and walked in to the bank that day, uh, wrote, bought the bank for, um, you know, a small portion of that. We had to inject the rest of it in capital. I remember I wrote a $26 million check in down to downstream capital into the bank from, from our investment fund. And I looked at one of my colleagues who's, who went to college with me, worked with me at Triumph since the early days. And I said, I just became the most unlikely banker in the history of banking. So my way into banking was through a near-death experience is what it felt like to me through almost <laughs> personal bankruptcy. But that's how I got into banking. All right, we're going to get into everything. That's an amazing story. We're going to get into everything that's happened since. But like, there's a few things I wrote down while you were talking you said something you said at the very beginning, you go, a, a bank should always generate cash flow if it's run well. Mm -hmm. Do you really literally mean always, no matter what cycle it's in? Or was there something deeper to that? Like, shouldn't everything produce cash flow if it's run well? Or is there something specific to banking? Look, banking is a license from the government to make money. Yeah. You should, in my opinion, never bet your capital in banking. You should only bet a portion of your earnings. Think about the structure of a bank in and of itself. Banks are 10 times leveraged. If you think about the right-hand side of a balance sheet, 90% of that is leverage in the form of deposits because we buy deposits from people who have checking accounts with you, savings accounts, CDs, et cetera, and only 10% is equity. The whole left-hand side of the balance sheet are your assets, whether they're loans, securities, cash, whatever they may be, and with that kind of leverage and with access to the most stable funding source on earth, which is an FDIC insured deposits, yeah. you should put yourself in a position where you should always be profitable. In the history of Triumph, we've been in this bank since we cleaned it up in January 2011 through the first quarter of 2022. So in 11 years, seen a lot of different things. There's been one quarter we weren't profitable. And that was just because we were building loan loss reserves at the beginning of COVID because we didn't know what was happening. So yes, I believe banks should always be profitable. And in fact, banking is an industry, is an interesting industry in that good bankers can run a bank with no capital because they will never take too much risk. Someone who shouldn't be in banking, you can't have enough capital to protect them from themselves. Got it. What was the original idea to turn around a failing bank and start making more real estate loans? Was there like an initial thesis or when you say like, I wanted to clean up this bank, clean it up and do what? Well, at the time, all I really knew was real estate. And, yeah. You know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> and so I thought that a bank is a beautiful accordion style balance sheet. If you can get the 10% capital, you can go get deposits, right? You can wholesale fund yourself. You can expand a bank balance sheet more rapidly than about anything else. And I believe that if the regulators were going to come down hard on underperforming banks, what banks have to do when they get in trouble is they've got to shrink their balance sheet. That's the only way to get the capital ratios back because they generally can't raise outside capital because nobody knows where the bottom is. So they sell subperforming loans, securities at a discount, whatever it may be. They sell things that are saleable so that they can shrink their balance sheet. And so I believed if there was going to be a delevering, that if we had a bank with fresh capital in it, it would be raining gold and we would use that as a bucket to catch whatever fell. And I mean, at that time, that was real estate loans to me. I thought we would be buying real estate loans at 
you know, debt yields that were 12 or 13% and accreting that back into income over time. Um, that's not, that happened in this cycle, but only for about three months because the regulators took a much different approach in the Great Recession than they did in the FSLIC crisis. And unfortunately, during that three months when it was raining gold, we didn't own a bank yet. We were still yeah. part of our process. So the day we got control of the bank, we really had to reinvent what we were going to do. You know, that the it had never gotten to the point of what's our long-term plan. It was more, it was a trade in a very dislocated market of how you could aggregate assets, accrete that back into income over time, and then figure out what your next move was. So when you're talking about uh, buying the bank and then buying distressed loans, you're talking about once you own the bank, you were going to be buying distressed loans from other banks? Right. That, yeah. The, and not, not, not a lot of non-performing loans, but sub-performing loans that, that, I mean, this is how, and Andy Beal of Beal Bank is, you know, made several billion dollars. He used a bank to buy things cheaply and then Re, you know, he, he didn't really foreclose on a lot of stuff. He restructures it and so that his cash flow is extremely high because he has a low basis in those assets. He's the only person I've ever known to do it in banking. And the man's a genius. You couldn't imitate his model today. But I think that was the inspiration of if I could buy, if I'm funding myself at a 1% cost of funds and here's a 5% coupon on a loan, but it's being sold at 85 cents on the dollar because the bank has to get out, has to shrink its balance sheet. Well, then, you know, that implied yield to me is in the 7% range. Right. And I don't mean to sound like an idiot, but I'm going to sound like an idiot. In the, in theory, though, you're acting as an investor. You're a bank, but you're you're acting as a distressed investor. Is yeah, correct. Be because at that time, and, and that's and, legal. Well, yeah, you have to manage your capital ratios, your asset quality ratios. But banks can do a lot more than the typical bank does. I mean, I say to people all the time, banking is a bag, not a box. But most people approach it as a box. Like this is what banks do. But then the other opportunity you had once you were inside the banking industry is banks were failing every Friday. Like every Friday you get an email. And so you had to own a bank to be able to participate in those auctions. They're really not an auction, but that's kind of what the process is like. And so the my CFO who just retired, his investor, it's a fascinating story of Blue Bonnet Savings Bank, put up $1,000 I think borrowed 30 million. This is in 1988. Got control of 4.2 billion in assets um, in a thrift. They consolidated 15 insolvent thrifts into a single institution called Blue Bonnet Savings Bank. And then, you know, worked through all those loans. They had guarantees from the government, yield guarantees. Long story short, he made $800 million on $1,000 of his own money because he had the charter at the right time. Yep. And I wasn't, you know, you can't calculate the IRR on that. But theoretically, if you were a new entrant into the space with fresh capital and freshly positioned, you would be able to take advantage of the dislocations in the market. Do you think if you were trying, if you were 28 again in today's market and you were in, let's just say there was a distressed bank out there, would you have gotten approved? Or do you think it was because the world was falling apart? They kind of were like, look, it's better than nothing. Or do you think they'd hold you to higher standards than maybe they did back then because the market's flush right now? That's a great question. I'm glad I don't have to find it out because it's an incredibly, the, the regulatory process is incredibly painful. 
On one side, I would say it's unlikely because they were worried. Nobody knew, you know, when you've got Lehman failing, nobody knew where the bottom was. And so the fact that we were stepping in with capital and putting that in front of the FDIC insurance fund got people's attention. The reason that I think they might still approve it is because banking is a shrinking industry. In the 1980s, there were 14,000 banks. We're down to 5,500, I believe, at last count. And I think the regulators see that you need to bring new entrants into banking, new banks, unless you just believe that the four money center banks should dominate all of banking, which I don't think is healthy for anyone. Um, so maybe it could have happened. Uh, I think that there would, the questions that I would be asked now would not be so much about, I mean, the business plan would matter, but it'd be a whole lot of other questions that have, as this process has gotten politicized, like many other things. And so I don't know how it would have, would turn out. All right. Now we're going to go from, you bought the bank and now we're just going to evolve the conversation to where we are today, but you buy the bank you put 26 million into it. You walk in, you're the new CEO. I would imagine you kind of don't know what you're doing. You'd been a teller, but you're an entrepreneur. What did the bank look like the day you walked in? How messy really was it? And where were what what caused the mess? The mess was that the bank was founded or, or the people who had gotten control of the bank in 2004-ish or 2005 had formerly worked at Beale Bank. And they were going to try to run that same play. And so they were out using the bank to buy distressed real estate loans in 2005 and 2006. Well, the problem was if you were buying a distressed real estate loan in 05 and 06, you had no idea what distress was going to look like in 08, 09. <laughs> so that was the problem. We had loans in 50, you know, 45 states, no all asset classes. They were buying things that many times that had gone bad before they'd gone into a CMBS securitization. They'd gone bad in the warehouse. Mm -hmm. Just a hodgepodge. So that's what we had. Uh, I think there were 43 people working in the bank. The bright spot, and I couldn't have done it without them, is there were four to five people, including my COO and my CFO, um, who hadn't been there to make the mess. They had come into the bank to try to clean it up and they had worked at Blue Bonnet previously, retired, done other things and come had come back in and they were brilliant operators. They knew how to run a bank. I didn't. I knew how to chase down a bank and raise capital for a bank, which they didn't know how to do. And so the two of us, despite the age difference, despite the different way in or that I came into banking versus them, um, I think a character trait I had learned from my mentors and hopefully gets better with time is to approach them with humility. Like I'm walking in with fresh capital and yes, I'm the CEO, but I don't have all the answers yep. and I need your help and I want to be your partner and you're going to be good at things that I'm not good at. And I've done some things you haven't done and let's work together. And they stayed like nobody left um, that of that core team. And so we spent one year and one day. We went from November 5th, 2010 to November 6th, 2011. We were released from all regulatory orders. And it's very difficult to run a bank when you're under orders because it's just everything is harder. So in 366 days, we got the bank upgraded to where it could now play offense. But for that first 366 days, we didn't really make loans. All we were trying to do was offload assets. The same thing I just told you about was my thesis going in. I was doing that same thing. I needed to get my classified assets, my non-performing loans. 
I needed to get all of that cleaned up so that we could now actually go play offense. Right. I, I mean, I said to my mentor, you know, I've got 43 people here. I'm one person playing offense and 42 people playing defense because that was the state of things. So it was tough, but those, that core group who was there, who stayed with me through the transition, many of whom are still with me today, they were, th- their contribution was invaluable yeah. to what we were trying to do and, and covered up all my lack of, of experience. So that 366 days, you're basically going through taking your your worst performing loans and who's buying them? Other banks, individuals? Like at that time, how are these getting off your books quickly? Any way and every way I could move it. Yeah. Um, one of the more creative ways we moved one is there's a very well-known developer in Dallas. We had a shopping center in Jacksonville, Florida. We financed their purchase of the distressed loan out of the bank facilitated the foreclosure, stayed in as their lender and didn't have them put up any money. And I took a carried interest on the back end. You know, it's a real <laughs> estate approach. But I, you know, I it at least I got it off my books, yep. right? I now had fresh, you know, they put capital into the deals. So we would sell it to the borrower at a discount. I mean, anything we could do to work our way out of it. Um, we explored all avenues. And And last dumb question, well, I probably have more, but when somebody says we have a two hundred and fifty million dollar bank or a two hundred and fifty billion dollar bank, you you said you bought it for you raised forty five million. Is the two fifty the total amount of loans out? Like, what does two fifty mean? It's total assets. Okay, total so the assets. assets on the balance sheet of a bank are going to be loans, securities, cash, and premises. Got it. All right, so we get through three hundred and sixty six days. We're on offense now. Then what happens during that time? Again, providentially, um, I my brother had worked at a company um, and had been their CFO in, in Mississippi and through that had met a gentleman who knew another gentleman, a gentleman named Steve Hausman, who's one of my dear friends to this day, who was running a transportation factoring business based in Dallas. Now, transportation factoring. Factoring is actually the oldest form of finance. It's not lending. It's when you buy an invoice from someone. So if if you're, you see it a lot in the apparel industry, when someone's owed money from the retailer, um, you know, to the, to the apparel manufacturer, they can buy that invoice generally for 98 cents on the dollar. And so it provides working capital to people who don't have, you know, enough capital to wait to get paid in due course. And so in the transportation industry, Trucking is incredibly fragmented, incredibly um, entrepreneurial, and also very thinly capitalized. You have 250,000 active trucking companies in the United States. 96% of them have four trucks or less. And most of those are not in a position to have a back office that allows them to invoice the person for whom they haul. And they also don't have the working capital to turn around and fill their truck up again once they drop off a load. And so transportation factoring companies step in, they buy the invoice. If, if a small trucker were to haul a load for, um, you know, Nestle, Nestle water ships a ton of freight because Americans, we buy bottled water instead of running it through pipes. We set it on trucks and drive it down the highway. Nevertheless, that trucker buys or hauls a load 600 miles for Nestle waters to a distribution facility. That trucker should be paid about $1,800. 
a factoring company will step in and buy that $1,800 invoice the day he drops it off and pay $1,760-ish for it. So now the trucker has working capital. The factoring company owns the invoice and then 30 days later goes back and collects from Nestle. And so that's how factoring works in transportation. And so this gentleman, Steve Hausman, was running a transportation factoring business with 40 million in net, net funds employed, which is essentially like a $40 million loan book. We say NFE because they turn every 33 days. That's about how fast the portfolio turns because those are the terms in trucking, normally 30-day payments. And so I met this gentleman as we were in the process of cleaning up the bank and began to believe, didn't know much about trucking, uh, knew about as much about trucking as I did about banking when I got into it, but I believed in the people and the strategy that putting this inside of a bank could be an exceptional opportunity. Did you meet him be through the bank or you just met him like on a golf course and kind of spurred a relationship or was he a customer of the bank? Like, or was this totally separate? Actually, no, my brother introduced him to me and okay. while I was trying to raise money for the bank and I thought he had money. And so <laughs> I, he, the joke is I went to him to raise money for him, him to put in the bank. He met with me to get me to buy his company. So we both wanted each other's money. Um, but yeah, we met and, and so then, you know, We'd already been told, and I think this is a recurring theme, and, and I want to say this with, with genuinely no hubris, but we'd been told, look, you'll never be allowed to buy a bank um, at your age with your experience. You're not going to raise the capital. It's not going to happen. And we just, you know, we were hard-headed about it enough, but I had peace in my heart and I had wise counselors around me yeah. who would have said, if they thought it was a terrible idea, would have spoken up. Um. And so then the next thing is people who knew banking, including many of the people inside the bank, they're like, there is no way that the regulators freshly after cleaning up this bank are going to let you go buy <laughs> a company that you could cynically say makes loans to semi-solvent truckers. Like, they're just not going to do that. And I'm like, well, I think it's a good idea. We're going to try. And Steve Hausman and his right-hand man, George Thorson, we were able to get a meeting with the FDIC because at that point, we still had to ask permission from the FDIC to do anything. So yeah. We were a new entrant, fresh off of regulatory orders. You got to build your credibility. It's like anything. Even with a government agency, relational capital matters. In fact, relational capital is more important than money capital. Yep. And so we took them in, sat down, they laid out their program. They're like, this is what we do. We don't lend to the trucker. We buy their invoice. They're not a credit risk. They're a fraud risk. We got to make sure the invoice is legitimate. We're actually collecting from people like Nike, Nestle Waters, C.H. Robinson, you know, big, big Fortune 1000 companies. And for whatever reason, the FDIC says, it looks like you've got good operators. You've got a good plan. We're not going to object to you buying this company. Okay, one question before we get into the meat, just to really kind of paint a picture of what a typical trucking company looks like. Four trucks, can't even have a back office person to invoice. So is this just maybe an owner with, you know, independent contractor drivers, four trucks, maybe has a lot somewhere? I mean, it's about as, I don't want to say, uh, not the word, it's about as um, bare bones of a skeleton company as you could have. You got four trucks, three drivers maybe an owner who's a driver and that's really it. That's it. And and a lot of them are true owner operators. They own one truck. I mean, I'm sure you've driven past neighborhoods where you've seen a semi pulled in front of a house. Yeah. That's where that guy lives or that girl lives. 
And a lot of them in the early days, and it still actually happens, you could come out and see it at our facility, our factoring facility in Capel, the trucker will drive to our facility, get out with the invoice and get cash on the spot on the spot. <laughs> okay. Now we've kind of painted a picture of what the average trucking company looks like. Why did it make sense to buy this business inside of a bank as opposed to just another venture that you had outside of the bank? Because in a finance company, financial companies should never be valued on EBITDA multiples, right? You should be valued on earnings multiples because my biggest cost is always interest expense, right? right? I'm, I'm selling money. We talked about how we buy money from depositors. Now let's talk about how we sell money to borrowers, whether they're real estate borrowers or trucks, you know, truckers. So if you've got a bank that's 10 times levered already, that has a cost of funds around 1%, and you can put a factoring business that has a portfolio that's yielding 20% inside the bank with 10 times leverage, that is rocket fuel for a bank. And it, I, you, know, you can't hide it. Like go, you can go back and look at our numbers. Our net interest margin is in the top 1% of all banks in in the United States of America. And the reason is because that business, we've scaled that business inside the bank because the factoring company gets to use those deposits. And, you know, with all due respect, I'd love to lend you money at three and a half percent on your first and main real estate deal. <laughs> but I'm a yield junkie, right? And my job is to make money. And I do a lot better lending it out at 20% yields to these truckers. And just so you understand, it's not, you know, people would say, well, that sounds like payday lending. Well, we do the whole back office for them. We are their back office. And so our cost to service these little $2,000 invoices is roughly 10% of the asset. So if I'm not even lending at 10%, I'm not even breaking even. It's a high touch, high friction you know, industry. Now, what we've been able to do because we've built such scale is it's allowed us to use technology to drive down those operating costs. But you are essentially that trucker's back office. You're talking to them three times a week. You're telling them, this is a good credit. This is a bad credit. We won't buy this invoice haul for them. And you do that inside a bank because of that superior funding advantage. All other factoring companies that are not bank-owned are having to borrow from a bank at 3 or 4% mm. and then turn around and lend it out. And they're only allowed four times leverage, right? If, well, I'm borrowing at 1% because I'm buying funds from FDIC insured depositors and I have 10 times leverage and I'm making the same yield. So that's why it, it's, it, it makes us look different. So it, what you just said is, you know, Chris Powers LLC calls a trucker and says, hey, will you haul off a bunch of my new Chris Powers water bottles? That trucker might call y'all and say, hey, will you just look up Chris and see if his company's worth a damn and y'all's business could call him or kind of tell him back and be like, that would be a high risk deal. Like y'all are actually helping make the decision on who he, they should haul for or not. Absolutely. Like we told truckers, um, and my few, water's great, by I, the way. I'm sure it looks lovely. <laughs> um, the, we told truckers a few years ago, we're not buying any more Chesapeake invoices. So if you want to haul for Chesapeake, be free to do that, but we're not going to buy the invoice. So you're going to have to do it out of your own working capital because we were worried they were going to go bankrupt. And Look what happened. So those kind of discussions happen all the time. We're managing concentrations of credit and thinking about, again, factoring's different in that the trucker is not a credit risk. They're a fraud risk. You've got to make sure the invoice is legitimate. We get fraudulent invoices every day sent to us. So we have to be very sophisticated in that. The credit risk is the 
person for whom they hauled. Yep. Now we got to make sure that person is able to pay their trade payables in due course. And so we use sophisticated modeling to look for fraud on the one hand and to look at credit risk on the other hand. So the fraud is some trucker that says, I just hauled this for Nestle. Here's an invoice. Pay me. Yeah. And if y'all aren't careful, you pay them, but they never actually hauled anything for Nestle. Yeah. So we have algorithms built and, and, and even use some machine learning to, we can't verify every invoice. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're getting, so, you know, we're doing 1.4 billion a month in purchases, $2,300 at a time. So tens of millions a day, tens of thousands of invoices a day. I have 375 people who work in that business. You can't verify every invoice. So you have to use, you have to look at historical trends for individual customers and make educated guesses on what percentage of invoices you need to verify before you buy. But I mean, it, it can be just as simple as they use whiteout and they, they change a date. And it's especially if they run the same load frequently and then that load gets canceled, you know, and they don't run it, but they just white out and change the date, submit the invoice. Um, there's double brokering schemes. I mean, there's look, trucking is full of some of the most fascinating and many of them first generation entrepreneurs. I've seen them go from one truck to having 500 trucks. It's it's amazing to help these small business owners grow. But there are there are bad actors. No yeah. question. And and so. Yeah, they'll they'll try to defraud you. I mean, it's a crime of opportunity, and it it the opportunity is every day. Okay, so you meet Steve, and you buy the the factoring company inside the bank, and we've kind of talked about why that would would make a lot of sense. Let's just kind of talk about the scale of like where the business was, and kind of how we've grown it to where we're uh, putting out a. Did you say a billion and a half a month? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that you obviously didn't buy it at that. You've gotten it there and you've learned a lot along the way. Yeah. This is fascinating. Yeah, we have. Um, so uh, 40 million a month is now, I think, 1.5, 1.55 billion. Um, we paid a $9.3 million premium to buy that business over its book value. And I ground my teeth over that because remember, we had just, raised $45 million, spent a year cleaning up the bank, hadn't made any money. I was kind of out of friends who would take my phone calls, right? <laughs> but I needed to raise $9 million to buy this business, you know, pay goodwill, right? You pay a multiple on earnings if you think something's going to be able to do it. And so, man, I had to beg some of my original investors to put another $9 million in so we could pay for the dilution, the tangible, you know, banks don't run out of cash. It's always about managing regulatory capital ratios. Right. So if you pay a premium for something that dilutes your capital ratios. So we put the 9 million in. And then through the tremendous leadership of Steve Hausman, George Thorson, and a bunch of people down through my current CEO out there, Jeff Brenner, um, that business now generates 250 million in revenue and about 130 million in net income annually. So it is the best investment we have ever made. I have ever personally been a part of. 90% of that growth has been organic through investing back in the business, through digital marketing channels, um, through creative things that other people dreamed up, not me. Um, and we, and then building technology, you know, the technology to handle the volumes that we see right now, that would have been unimaginable to us in the early days. And, um, so 
And that business also gave birth to the idea of try and pay. So it's in a way the gift that keeps on giving. And, and what started as this was just an idea to put a factoring company inside a bank has turned us into we are a transportation centric enterprise now. Our whole future is about financial technology and transportation. And it all started with that investment. I didn't foresee it. There's no Harvard Business School, well-written paper. There's no PowerPoint. It was really just reacting to opportunity as it came, keeping your eyes open and getting great people and a healthy culture. And what that team has done um, at Triumph Business Capital is just, I mean, it's, it's astounding. It's unbelievable. All right, dumb question. Are you, is it, it, it is a bank because it's owned in a bank. Yep. But are you really a bank? Like, Depends upon what you mean by bank. I guess, uh, I don't really know what I mean. I mean, when I, I guess when I think as a real estate guy, a bank is like, I just think of your typical bank. But when I hear this story, I think of it as this incredible business wrapped up in a bank charter. Do you think of yourself as a bank or do you think of yourself as a transportation company? Maybe that's the question. Yeah. And, and I think you're catching me in transition. I think what, when, People say bank, what most people think of is a community bank. Deposits in the local community, you take deposits from your members of your community, you loan money out in the community. But there's credit card banks that stand behind, you know, American Express, for example, is a, is a bank. There's merchant banks, there's investment banks, there's regional banks. Um, what we are becoming is a financial technology bank for the transportation industry, which means it's, we still have community bank operations and they, they do a lot for us, but it is, we are not really what you would think of as a community bank. And I think we serve a very interesting um, purpose in, in how, in being a bank. And, 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 and I don't say that because I'm a banker, just look at the fintech companies who've gone out and raised money by pointing at, shooting at, making fun of what traditional banks, you know, boring banks do. Eventually, they seek a bank charter themselves. Look at Block, which is um, Jack Dorsey's company. You know, they sought a thrift charter, which is a, a, a type of bank charter. There's several, Vero and others, because what you inevitably find in the financial services world is there is much benefit to being a bank. You just don't have to run it the way your grandfather's bank was run. Yeah. You're making me want to buy a bank, but <laughs> you're also, you've already laid the, the groundwork that it might be hard to do. Um, okay. So you're, you're, you're evolving. We're like catching you in transition, but let's just kind of go back. So when you bought it, when did you start building technology? Was there already technology in place or were, again, were you kind of reacting to issues you were seeing going, let's just solve this through trans or technology? And how did you, you kind of went from a real estate, distressed real estate investor to a bank buyer, to a factoring, and then you built this like unbelievable software, which is no easy feat. So let's kind of talk about building the software. When did that start? Was that capitalized out of the factoring company or did you have to go raise like additional capital to build this massive software platform? No, we, we built everything out of retained earnings. So we were not going to dilute our investors. And, you know, along this journey, we also bought some community banks to get scale. We went public, which that's its we're own, talk whole about other that. rodeo. Okay. 
But we just started reinvesting in the technology because if you looked at it, if you looked at it, you have a highly repeatable transaction, right? Construction projects are not highly repeatable unless you're building track homes. Yep. And if you're building track homes, by about the third time you do it, you've probably figured out, I can pre-order this, I can cut this this way, I can do this in CAD that, that saves the carpenter 7% time. Same thing applied to our business. You sit and look at a factoring business, 65% of its cost is people. Okay, and people are great and we need people. But how can we empower people to do more than they used to do historically? And well, let's look at the day in the life of an invoice, right? An invoice was coming in in those days via facsimile. Today it comes in through a picture. They take a picture on the phone. We OCR the picture. We geotag the location. It comes directly into our software. And so you just start picking apart the process of, okay, we've got a bottleneck here. Can technology solve the bottleneck here? Yes. Okay, great. Now that one's opened up. Well, now we're running into a bottleneck here. And so it was just, there was no grand plan. As we look back at it now, it's super easy to say, oh yeah, I always envisioned this. <laughs> we weren't that smart. It was it, chaos. It was just, it's just chaos all the time. Of, <laughs> I got to fix this fire. Okay, that caused the fire over here. Now let's go fix that fire. And so really smart people on our team just kept fixing things. And I kept saying, look, I'm going to reinvest in you. We're, this is not about the short-term play. Like, let's go compound this because that's the flywheel effect in banking. If you generate capital and you put that capital back into the bank, every dollar of capital I generate, that's 10 more dollars of assets I can hold. Yep. And that's a flywheel. And so we just chose to keep investing. And so it's been a perpetual ongoing reconstruction um, you know, or construction, I guess, from the ground up of a technology service that took what, when we originally bought it, was an off-the-shelf product. It was never equipped to handle the kind of volumes it was already doing into what is now an enterprise system that can handle, you know, one and a half billion dollars a month. This is totally off topic for just a quick second, but just like listening to how you think, are you, would you put yourself in the category of being like a really big visionary? Or would you put yourself in the category of you're amazing at like understanding what's in front of you and how to get through the next step? Because I think there's a lot of people as when I've interviewed 200 people, they can't figure out what to do today because they're so focused on tomorrow. And everything you've said has just been this consistent, like, oh, another obstacle. This is what we're going to, we're just going to kind of keep blocking and tackling. So are you just very future oriented or are you just amazing at understanding the opportunity that exists with what you know in the situation? Yeah. You know what? I'd love to sit here and tell you I'm a visionary and I saw all of this. I saw where the puck was going. That's not true. In yeah. fact, my 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 COO now says, Aaron, you don't you don't hit every shot. You just get all the offensive rebounds because <laughs> we call a bunch of shots that we miss. Like we make mistakes. We backtrack. And so I think if there's anything that I've been taught that God gifted me with is I'm not going to be denied, yep. right? Okay. I, I took that jump shot. I clanked it. Well, I'm going to go get the offensive rebound and put it in. So I think it's probably more of, I'm good at, okay, tell me what your issue is. Remember where the end is we're going. And, and, and I'm not totally sure that end is what it is. I mean, we know what we want to do. We want to be valuable. Yeah. Let's solve this issue. I think it's probably, I, I, while I think I do have creativity and vision, I think 
It's more towards assimilating resources that whatever this thing is, is not going to be the thing that stands in our way tomorrow. Yep. All right. We're going to get back to, we're going to get to triumph pay, but just to kind of wrap up the, the basic of the technology is you just, uh, took some of Chris's water bottles, you dropped them off, you're getting on an app, you are, are, you're doing it from the location to prove that it's dropped off so that it's geofenced, you're submitting an invoice, it's coming into the system, me at, or you at, or the Triumph goes, here's the invoice, send them the money like within 24 hours on the spot. Generally one hour. Okay, so money's in your bank account, we gave you 1760, we're going to be collecting 1800 or whatever. Yep. And the way you get to the 20% margin, it's basically like a point and a half every month for 12 months. You nailed it. Yeah. Okay. And me as the person I'm willing to pay that because Triumph's going to back it. I can get my money in an hour. And and I do some other things for you. What so, is, yeah. What is the, uh, let's talk about the back office. Yeah. Well, so number one is the back office. I mean, the a trucker who is either going to have to sit in a truck stop and get on a Wi-Fi signal to submit their invoice. Yep. Or what many of them do is send it home to their spouse who she runs QuickBooks or he runs QuickBooks if he stays at home. And then they, you know, submit the invoice. And that just, it's just hard to scale that. And so what most of them have decided to do, 65% of all invoices that get paid in trucking are factored. And most people don't, I mean, that, that is a, that is a not well-known fact. And the reason is because factoring companies are more than just a balance sheet. So what we do next is we aggregate for all of our customers all the diesel they purchase. And we go to Love's, Pilot Flying J, TA, and we negotiate discounts on their behalf. Well, if I'm a trucker, 30 to 40% of my cost is in fuel. And if I can use a Triumph fuel card to save 13 cents a gallon, then that's offsetting this financial burden of the factoring industry. And, and so we do things like that. We, we help them get, we have an insurance subsidiary. So we help them get insurance and we finance the cost of insurance over 12 equal payments at 0% interest because it's hard to write that check when it comes around once a year. So the idea is now, what would a bank look like if it were created by truckers for truckers? And that's what Triumph is doing. A, because it's a segment of society no one ever wanted to bank before. No one cared about. You're aggregating all the truckers in the country and using their collective power to do bargaining on their behalf and then give it back to them. Right. Is the industry headed more towards consolidation where there's going to be less four-person trucking companies or are there going to be more in 10 years? Great question. If we look at the current state of affairs, there are more small trucking companies coming in every month. Now, partly that was due to these record high invoice prices, which invoice prices, that's why I talk about it because I'm the banker. They would think of it as revenue per mile, mm -hmm. you know, like $3, $4 of revenue per mile. A trucker can make a significant amount of money. So some of these truckers leave large fleets and start their own entity. And then they do that until the market turns on them and then they give up their entity, take their power unit back and go sign on with a large fleet. Like there's a whole lot of movement around, but the doom of the small trucker has been predicted for years and years, and there's more of them now than there ever was. And so I would say don't bet against entrepreneurs who are willing to drive overnight to do the things. I mean, there's a customer service component. If, a, if their shipper or their freight broker needs something at a certain spot by a certain time, 
the trucker who gets that done right is going to get the next best load. And these people in this industry are so resourceful, work so hard, and it's a low barrier to entry business, right? You got to pass a drug test. You got to get your motor carrier license, which is not easy. And, you know, most of them borrow 97 cents on the dollar on a truck, and then they just go work. Do you provide healthcare insurance? We don't. We haven't figured out a way to aggregate that one yet yeah. for them. Oh, man, this is fascinating. Even today, I think I read it was either today or yesterday that Amazon's passing off 5% fuel charge and like transportation costs off to its sellers. So the question isn't, um, that's not my question. My question is, I would imagine in, a, in an environment like where we're at right now, inflation's moving, costs are moving. And I think about the four-person company that, um, by all means is sophisticated at trucking, but they're probably not as sophisticated at understanding how quick their costs are moving and if they're actually making money or not. So quick question, do you guys help them determine what to charge for that load or is it still on them to understand what they're charging and that's totally separate from anything you're touching? Yeah, we don't get involved in that. The okay. spot rate moves. I mean, there, there's a very broad and liquid market of what we call spot rate invoices, which is priced per day. Okay, These truckers can choose to take the load or not take the load. Sometimes if the spot rate market gets soft enough, they'll just soft enough. They'll just park their trucks and wait, you know, for a better day, which is a wise thing to do because they got to remember they're driving depreciating assets. When a truck gets up to 700,000 miles, the cost of service per mile goes up. And um, when it gets over a million miles, it goes up a bunch. So we've seen, I mean, it's financial planning for these folks is, is something that many of them fail to do. They ride the wave when it's really good. Um, now, some are really smart. Like they put money away. They're saving it for a rainy day. They're rotating trucks, keeping their costs down. But I mean, truckers do live at the mercy. I mean, trucking is a leading indicator for the economy. It is very volatile. And even right now, we're seeing a pullback in freight, and yet these guys have very high fixed fuel costs. And so their margins have gotten compressed dramatically in the last 30 to 45 days versus what was probably the greatest year in, the, in trucking ever for the truckers themselves, 2021. Do you guys finance trucks? We do. We do. We have about a $600 million book for that we don't finance for the smallest truckers we're not we're not good at that that's hard to do in a bank but our average um trucker that will finance trucks for has five to 15 power units if they get up to where they have a couple hundred power units they're going to borrow from a, a big bank yeah yeah how does triumph pay work like how is that different or we just discussed it or is that a new thing that we haven't talked about yeah yet? no no triumph pay is 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 the um i think the the thing that could change Triumph the most. Um, so Triumph Pay was invented in 2015. Again, uh, Steve Hausman had a big hand in that and others. And everything I just told you that makes the factoring industry great, one of the negatives is you spend a tremendous amount of time and effort chasing around small truckers who are the payees. I mean, they're getting paid. Um, these payees, these small truckers, who on average stay in business for 22 months. It's kind of a barbell. Some go out of business in two to three months or they leave you for whatever reason. Some stay for five years, but on average, 22 months. So you got this huge SG&A expense trying to find, onboard, sell to, recruit these truckers, and yet 
they're going out the back end and there's nothing you can do about it. So if you just sat down with a whiteboard and said, we love this industry, is there a better way to do this? What would it be? And we said, the better way is to integrate with the payors. Don't, don't integrate with the truckers. Go to the people actually making the payments to the truckers because those people don't go out of business every 22 months. You know, they're much more sophisticated, stable, et cetera. So you go to them and what does it take to get them to agree to outsource their trucking payments to you? Well, the good news is they hate making payments. They like moving goods, but making payments to truckers is exceedingly difficult. Number one, because 65% of trucking companies have factoring companies attached to them. So you have to pay someone other than the trucker. Number two, where do I send money when someone's sleeping at a different truck stop every night? If I don't have up-to-date bank account information, if they only haul one load for me, a lot of times for a freight broker, a trucker will haul for them one time and never haul again. So now I've onboarded them, done all this work, paid them one time, and I don't ever see them again. It's incredibly inefficient. So we approached the industry, the freight broker specifically, and there's 9,500 freight brokers in the United States. The top 1,000 control 90% of the market, and it's a $175 billion market, just freight brokerage. All of trucking's 8% of gross domestic product, just under a trillion dollars. Um, but freight brokers, and those would be J.B. Hunt, C.H. Robinson, XPO, Landstar. You've seen, their, you've seen their logos up and down the roads. They just don't own all those trucks, right? They, they are logistics companies. They're asset light companies. And so we've approached that industry and we said, tell you what, um, you've heard of us on the factoring side, we want to pay all of your carriers for free. And they're, well, why would you do that? I mean, that sounds great. What's the trick? And we said, well, we'll just be real candid. The trick is that 65% of your payments are going to factoring companies, not to your carriers. And we think we can aggregate the data and do this in a, in a more seamless way. Said another way, we believe that there is $25 of friction cost for the payment of a $2,000 trucking invoice. That friction exists on the payor side, that's the freight broker or the shipper, and on the payee side, the factoring company or the carrier. Now, $25 doesn't sound like a lot until you realize that there'll be 250 million truckloads in the United States this year. So we're talking about a revenue opportunity in the billions of dollars of cost savings, and everyone wins, right? We're not in this to charge either side more. We're in it to reduce friction. So we said, that's the value proposition. And of course, you know, it's, it's a sensitive thing to outsource payments to somebody, right? You get, I mean, it, it's, a, it's technologically complex what we do. And, and so we've worked at this for now six years. And as of right now, um, we have 560-ish freight brokers and another 30 or so shippers who use us to pay all their truckers. And in the course of doing that, um, right now, we're probably running $24 billion in annualized payment volume. So if you go back to trying business capital, I told you we'll buy 15 to $16 billion in invoices, and that's a business that started in 2004. On the try and pay side, where we're actually just making the payments, we're at $24 billion, and that was $20 billion last quarter and $16 billion the quarter before that. It's growing at, you know, 100% a year. And I mean, there's so much to this, but the, the idea, here's the picture I would paint for you. When you went to the grocery store with your grandmother, 
I'm sure at one time or another, she fished out her giant purse and she set it on the counter and then she fished her checkbook out of that giant purse. And then she wrote out the check and then the ca cashier behind the counter asked for her driver's license number. And then that's how she paid for those groceries. That is how trucking payments are made today. How trucking payments should be made is how you pay for groceries with a swipe of a card or a touch of a phone using structured data Everybody knows what everybody gets in two milliseconds. And that is the promise of Triant Pay, using structured data. So think about how that world works right now. A load, a load of, of Chris's water, if it exists in your warehousing system, right? I need to move this load of my water from Fort Worth to Chicago. So somebody on your side created a load in your system. And it has all the details, right? It has the when that's supposed to be delivered, how much you're willing to pay per mile, who's going to haul it, etc. The trucker picks up that load because you hired him to do it or used a freight broker, whatever you did. The trucker now drives to Chicago, delivers the load to the consignee. That's the person who receives the merchandise. The consignee signs the bill of lading, which says, hey, this was delivered. Now the trucker takes a picture of that bill of lading and sends it to me, his factoring company. That shows up to me as unstructured data. It is a picture, right? And so in my system, I now have to reconstruct that data to try to figure out what did the load look like when Chris's warehousing system had it in it. And so I do my best, right? I take the data from the rate confirmation and the sheet and I put it all together in an email and well, first of all, I decide, okay, I'm going to buy this invoice. So I send the money, right? The money's got to get out the door because my trucker needs it to fill up to go home. But now I have to ingest it into my system, into my ERP system. My factor management system is what we would call it. And now I'm going to email you unstructured data once again saying, hey, I bought this invoice from Joe's trucking. You need to pay me. Now someone on your side has to take that email, take the flat file out of the email, look at the flat file and go, does this match what was in my system? So what was structured data in your system, a series of ones and zeros that tells that can be manipulated has come back to you as a Adobe PDF or a picture. Makes no sense. It's the way the world worked in the 90s. It's not how the world should work now. So what Triumph Pay does is we build an integration with your warehouse system, with your and I, and I build an integration with my factoring company and the carrier. Now, before your trucker even picks up the load. You already know. I already know. Just like Google guesses where you're going to go based on what you've typed in. We already know because I see the structured data. And now when I send that invoice back to you, you don't have to have somebody ingested into your system. It's already structured. And so then you look at it and go, oh, yeah, this matches. And in doing that, we eliminate $25 of friction, time, and frustration, not to mention fraud mitigation, because you're the, you're the source of truth. You know, in any transaction, you got to figure out what the source of truth is. Your system is the source of truth because you're the payor. You're the person who hired this trucker. So I need to match back to your system. And if I can match back to your system using structured data, the likelihood of fraud goes down dramatically. You said I, you eliminate $25 of friction, but you said, I'm also not trying to, like, how do you, act, are you trying to make money or is you just creating stickier clients? 
No. So the $25 of friction, if I can cut that, if I can remove $15 of it, there's always going to be some friction, right? right? And and the f- truth is nobody knows how much friction can be reduced because nobody's done this before. Like we're on the bleeding edge of the frontier out here. Yeah. But I think we can eliminate $15 of, call it, of friction and maybe more as we get more scale. Well, then we're going to ask to split that with you. You keep $7 that you would have otherwise spent and try and pay keeps a portion of that. And and when you say it's, uh, you know, money that you would have spent, that's your case to them that you don't have to ha- hire all these, you know, accountants or accounts payable people that are going to be the ones making these payments. We're now ingesting your that. back office yes. just went down dramatically. Yes. OK, that's it. Yep. And, and, and the thing that I remind these folks of is, um, for example, a very large freight broker who's in the process of integrating with us just did a carrier dump. They dumped us every carrier that they had paid in the last 12 months, or maybe it was even longer than that. It might've been 24 months. We had paid 97% of those carriers already. And so it's just so powerful, the network of, we already have their data. I've got their bank account. I know who they are. I can tell you whether they're real or not. And so let us be the experts in payment. You be the experts at moving freight. We are a Visa network. We allow parties, just like when you walk into a store, what Visa does is it connects the merchant, that's the person you're buying from, to you, who are the card carrier, to your capital provider, whatever bank issues that Visa card, and you use structured data so everybody gets what they're going to get, and there's almost no, there's no back office cost associated with it. That's what we're bringing to trucking. And when we talked um, before this, Remind me again, you said, uh, um, how, how is American Express different from Visa? American Express is a bank. So okay, every time gotcha. you swipe an American Express card, that receivable that's generated, right? Because yeah. think about it. You buy a candy bar at the store today, your Amex bill doesn't show up for 30 days. That money had to sit somewhere for 30 days. And that receivable sits on the balance sheet of Centurion Bank, which is what Amex is a bank. Visa is just an open loop payments network. It allows various capital providers, JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Triumph, others to issue cards on its network, but the actual receivable sets on the balance sheet of that individual capital provider, not in this case, not Triumph Pay. It can sit on the balance sheet of the factoring company. It can sit in other places. Do the truckers keep deposits at Triumph? As part of this, is that like something that you want or do you care? Oh, totally. I mean, every bank <laughs> loves deposits. We're not, we we have to get better. This is the whole thing of we're redesigning. What if a bank was built by truckers for truckers? So a trucker is not going to be able to bring you a signed account agreement in, right? If you can't do DocuSign, if you can't have a totally mobile experience, if they can't use money when they want, how they want, then you're you're not doing them any any good. We are in the process of upgrading that experience and to design it for truckers. So yes, we have some trucker accounts. We would like to have more um, because we think that's a fundamental relationship a trucker should have with their bank. So does the public market uh, trade you like a bank or do they trade you like a fintech company right now? We're somewhere in between. So we trade... Of all publicly traded banks, we trade at the third highest price to tangible book value multiple of any bank and one of the highest forward PE multiples. So we trade at, um, you know, three and a half times tangible book. A JP Morgan Chase is going to trade at one and a half. Okay, so that the market is telling you two things. One of two things. Number one, either they think we're going to grow dramatically 
Or number two, that not all, not all forms of revenue are valued equally by investors. And that's a very important distinction. The reason payment networks, fee income driven opportunities trade at such high multiples is because they're incredibly sticky and they are recession resistant and there's no balance sheet risk. So an investor, a fintech investor who wants to own a payments company is going to pay a much higher multiple than a bank investor who wants to own a bank at first in Maine. So we are, we still have bank investors. We have some fintech investors and um, our stock trades at the very highest ranges of banks, but below where some fintechs trade. So we still have hopefully more progress to make there. Is there a reason why you went public to begin with? Banks eat capital. Okay. And all of my friends had stopped answering my phone calls, right? <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, like I, I didn't have money and I needed money for capital. And, and you know, that was, we went public a little early. Um, we didn't get a great multiple. It was um, a painful, painful experience. I considered it at the time my my greatest professional failure because we thought we were going to price between fourteen and sixteen dollars a share, and the offers came in the night of at twelve. And so we had all the boardroom, we had a, the, my whole board, and we were all in New York. And is it kind of like looks like you would think about it? There's thirty investment bankers in the room, and they're all wanting us to take the deal. And I'm exhausted because I've been in seven cities in two weeks, you know, selling this story and. We're going to miss the range. And that's, you know, you set the range when you go public and or you announce you're going public. So this was about to be, um, you know, a, a horrible failure in front of the whole world. And I think I could have cried on command at, at any moment. <laughs> and so we asked all the investment bankers to leave the room. And, um, and as they were walking out, one of them, who I really respected, I mean, I knew he wanted us to go public because he wanted to make money, you know, their fee. But he said, Aaron, there are investors standing here willing to give you $90 million. That was how much we were raising at $12 a share. You don't think, you think you're worth more than $12 a share. You're not selling your company. You're just bringing new capital into it. Take the money, go prove your business case, and no one will ever remember but you that you priced below your, um, below the range. And I shared that with the board when everybody left and we voted, um, there was a lot of back and forth, but we voted to take the deal and we went public. And that was November of 14. And about a week later, oil and gas went off a cliff and we wouldn't have been able to get out. Um, but that next day, trying to put on a brave face, I brought my family there. This is going to be a big celebration. And um, my daughter threw up in the floor of the NASDAQ. <laughs> she had a stomach bug. And I'm just like, this is, there's not champagne and yachts in this whole thing. This is not... <laughs> you know, what people think, but, uh, that's why we went public. We went public early, but it has served us well because, um, it's allowed us to now make investments and we now have a currency. We trade, you know, 20 plus times forward earnings, which allows us to use our stock as a currency to buy things that fit in with our, with our overall strategy. So I guess you were 31 or two when you went public. November of 14. So I would have been 34. All right. Let's, let's spend the last like 15 minutes kind of on, like you just said, I, we can use it as currency to buy things. What are you buying now? So for us, um, it, it, our world is getting smaller, right? I think a lot of companies, a lot of companies, 
parlay success in a core competency into going off and doing something they don't fully understand. We are doing the exact opposite. My world is shrinking every day to, I want to be the best in the world at paying truckers. That's, that's it. That's my value prop. And I also want to provide truckers the greatest banking experience possible. Those are the two things I want to be the best in the world at, which was not in my yearbook plan, you know, when, when in, coming out of high school, but it's what I love. I'm passionate about it. So um, if we buy things, it would be technology tuck-ins that help us on that journey to being the best in the world at paying truckers. And so those, you know, there, there'd be a variety of companies, but we also generate a hundred million in net income a year right now uh, after tax. So we we're building capital um, that we can also use, you know, buy things all cash, which I would prefer to do not to dilute my shareholders. Anybody listening, when I first met Aaron on the phone, I hadn't done enough research yet, but I started the conversation with, I might have to get a commercial real estate loan. And Aaron's the first banker that uh, responded with, I don't think I'm going to give you that loan. And after like everything we've talked about, I fully understand why uh, your mission is is your mission. You said that uh, trucking is a leading indicator and that shipments are down. I actually uh, recorded earlier this morning with a guy that's a huge used car dealer, and he said car sales are down the last three months. I'm not asking you to predict the future, but why is a consumer, is that a function of just consumers are slowing down? Is it because costs are so high that, um, like what what's causing the slowdown? I, I think we're just seeing a normalization. Yeah. I don't, and there could be a lot of things in, that that influences them. And I'm no economist, but we all had to come off of this sugar high yeah. of cars being priced above the sticker price. And so it's so funny how quickly the human condition gets to where whatever's happening at the moment, we project that into the future. Like, which of us thought it made sense for houses to trade two times the listing price? Like, it was all <laughs> it was a sugar high, right? And there yeah. was all these reasons that came together. I think freight is normalizing as far as on a rate per mile basis, but the overall freight tonnage has not fallen materially. Could it fall? Sure. Could the war in Ukraine, could other exogenous shocks, could the Fed raising interest rates cause tonnage to come down? Yes, and likely it will, but much ink has already been spilled. And like in our case, we've lost 25% of our market cap in the last 10 days. And I just think the market is told itself a story based on upon some media, po- you know, some some certain indicators, and has run with that story. Because on the other side, I would say we unemployment is is so low, and there is still so much pent up demand. So my view is freight is rationalizing back down to a more normal state. The problem for the trucker is their costs have gone up, their fuel costs certainly everything's more expensive. So we need it to normalize higher than where it was before all of this happened, or they're going to be underwater. And, you know, the cycle begins again. Yeah. Yeah. It's fair to say though, that the trucking industry, you know, as an industrial guy, I think the statistic is like 17 to 20% of all sales in America currently happen online. So there's still a lot of way to go for more people buying online. But right now, those if the, the other 80% of goods, if they're happening in stores, means that trucks are heading to stores and dropping off product. 
But as online grows and retail shrinks, does the trucking industry get bigger, get smaller, or stay the same? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I don't know that it matters. I think it just shifts the mode. If you're buying it at your house, it's going to be parcel, what we call parcel delivery, FedEx, UPS, that's going to grow more. If you're buying it at a store, it's going to be truckload because they're going to take a truckload of those same widgets to the store and you and 300 other people are going to buy those from the store. But a truck, we don't have a viable alternative. Everything in this room, everything you're wearing, when you go home tonight, if you bought it, a truck brought it, right? So Trucking, there's changes inside of trucking, whether it's more parcel heavy, more truckload, more LTL, which is less than truckload, like different modes move at different times, more flatbeds during when construction's strong like now to more refrigerated units when we're in produce season. Like there's all these underlying shifts, but until we figure out how to deliver things with drones or some other mode of delivery, Somebody's got to get goods out of the port of Long Beach yeah, yeah. to your house in Dallas. Somebody's got to get things co- that are being manufactured in Mexico City through Laredo to a distribution facility in San Antonio. And those are trucks. Is there anything that you can even remotely say keeps you up at night about the trucking industry? Sure. We're 12 years into what's supposed to be an eight-year cycle. Okay. So, for I mean... Look, banks take three types of risk. You take interest rate risk, you take credit risk, or you take revenue volatility risk. Triumph does not take interest rate risk. We don't make bets on long-term movements. And how you would take interest rate risk is you would lend on a 30-year fixed rate, but you're buying your funds every day, right, from depositors. And if rates go up like they're doing now, and you've made 30-year fixed rate loans at 4%, you're getting compressed. Yeah. So we don't take that kind of risk. We don't make long-term loans like that. The second way you take risk is taking more credit risk. There's less credit risk making a loan at first in main at a 50% loan to value, but I can get a higher yield if I go into a suburb and take an 80% loan. Well, we try not to take that risk at any material. I mean, you're always going to take some credit risk in that sense. What we take is revenue volatility risk. If trucking slows down, there's less invoices for me to buy. And if there's less invoices for me to buy, there's less profits for me to generate. But the good news is we're generating profits. Yeah. So I'm not immune to what happens. And so definitely I think about that. But it goes back to what I said. A bank should bet its earnings, not its capital. So if I have to face the investment community and go, we're down 50% on profitability because of the, the revenue cycle, but we didn't lose money on bad credits. That's what you want to do, right? You can't, you can't, as a bank, be immune to what the overall economy is doing. You just got to do it in such a way that you don't jeopardize the bank. Okay, real quick, just go through that one more time. A bank should bet their earnings, not their capital. Me and what and, and I'm just regurgitating what you said. Meaning, your biggest risk as a bank is just that revenue in the trucking industry slows down. Not that you made a bunch of bad loans or you know you're recovering from things like that. Exactly. I mean, I I think about it. I mean, that's just a broad statement. What I mean is I should never be taking above market risk that jeopardizes anything more than a portion of my earnings. If I'm willing to put my whole earnings stream at risk on some big bet, that's crazy. That's what you do when you're a fintech startup. That's not what you do when you're an FDIC insured institution. I mean, my job is to be nimble enough to compete when the market's hot but wise enough to survive when the market's cold. 
when you're buying a billion and a half dollars of invoices every month, I'm assuming you have to be a large enough bank to be able to have a billion and a half dollars to be cycling sure. through. Is that part of why you kept buying banks? Or where does this billion and a half dollars come from? Yeah, so we're six billion in assets. Okay. So a billion and a half of that is in our factored receivables. Um, and and so, yeah, it would be a different proposition if you had no other assets other than those. Even still, it, it should be profitable as long as you're not buying fraudulent invoices or not having a concentration of risk with some shipper. So, for example, no matter how good the shipper is, be it Walmart, Amazon, whomever, I won't allow more than 10% concentration in that name. So we, we try to make sure we spread that credit risk across the entire universe of shippers, not concentrate in some names, especially cyclical names. Oh, Johnny's seen me do a lot of these. There's only a few where I start fidgeting at the end because I'm like the, the opportunity is starting to, to sink in. Uh, I have maybe two more questions. When I think about trucking, whether it's happening every day, it's consistent, like it is, is there even an industry even close that could compete, like that you could do this kind of model in another industry, or is this really niche to trucking based on the way the industry works? Yeah, it would have to be an industry with a highly repeatable transaction where there's very little risk mm -hmm. of, of a complaint about the service provided. Like construction would be the worst place to do factoring oh. because I could always find a reason not to pay you the full amount of the invoice. And trucking, like the load showed up or it didn't. There's, I mean, there's, yes, there are damage claims, but it's in 0.01%. So I have not yet found an industry at the scale of trucking where you could create this highly repeatable business model where you could use artificial intelligence, machine learning, integrations to create a seamless experience. Um, for something that's 8% of gross domestic product. No, that does not exist. I don't, I can't off the top of my head think of a smaller business model or, or a smaller opportunity set. I mean, the interesting thing about trucking is you have extremely sophisticated people paying small businesses. It's the inverse of how you think the world works. The vendor in this relationship is the trucker. Mm -hmm. Generally, it's you and me and the vendor is Amazon. Uh -huh. But in this part of the supply chain, the narrative gets flipped. So now somebody has to stand in the void and integrate hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of very smart payors with hundreds of thousands of very small trucking companies. All right. If we sat down here 10 years from now and had a conversation about what happened over the last 10 years, I know your mission is to become, uh, you said, the um, invisible and ubiquitous payments network for trucking. So winning would look like we become so synonymous with how trucking payments are made that they would say, well, yeah, we just, we triumph paid that or we T paid that, you know, someday we may, we may shorten it down to that. Just like you would say Xerox to refer to a copy machine or Kleenex to refer to a tissue. We want to, I mean, the way you, you really create something unique in banking and you scale it and you make above market returns is you get so small that you're invisible. All I'm doing is taking a small bite of millions and millions of transactions that require no negotiation. If I'm going to be the best real estate lender, I'm going to, even if you and I have done 30 deals together, we're going to negotiate the finer points over and over again on a deal. I want to be invisible. 
I want to be this connection, a tollway that allows people to transmit data between them. I'm their trusted intermediary who stands in the middle. And if we, a couple of years, you know, by 10 years, we're certainly going to know. I would say in the next two years or not, you're going to know. Either we became invisible or ubiquitous and we've now started to monetize it or some competitive solution came along and disrupted us. This is going to happen. It makes too much economic sense for people to use unstructured data and ACH transfers in, in 2022. I think the payments are going to get tokenized. I think that um, you know, that world, it's going to be seamlessly integrated. And what we started, we started with the trucker. We're working our way back to the port. What I think the long game is, the goods that are sitting inside that container unit that you think of that you see going down the highway that got offloaded in the port of Long Beach actually started at a manufacturing facility in China. Think about if you had structured data all the way from the time it left the manufacturer in China as it crossed the ocean, then it went to the freight broker, or then it went to an intermodal you know, on rail. Then it went to the freight broker and finally to the trucker and finally to the ultimate retailer. If we all use structured data for the entire life cycle of the good, the USB cable that you bought that came, had to cross oceans to get here, um, then we're really onto something. And if Triumph ends up having the technology and the integrations to be the person who hosts all that, well, you know, then everybody who, you know, I, I think our shareholders will be very happy. This has been awesome, man. Congrats. Oh, thank you. This is so freaking cool. You know, it's in, in the process of going out and raising the 45 million, what I learned was the people who had such fascinating businesses that I, they did things that I woke up every day and took for granted. One of them was, you know, sold the little gizmos that you see on the, on the counter of a convenience store, like, you know, like the, the throwaway stuff and had made a fortune doing it. And so these people find these businesses and they get really good at them and they don't need all the press. They don't need their name on the side of a building. Um, and it, it's cool. And so I tried to learn from that, right? Like do some, solve a big problem that maybe nobody else either cared to solve or had the resolve to solve. And that's what we're trying to do. But thank you for having me. And, and I hope, I hope that, um, yeah, I hope that people who listen to this appreciate that trucker when they see them on I-35, like give him or her some room because that's your stuff they're hauling down the highway it's incredible man thank you so much appreciate it thank you for having me everyone it's chris here again thank you so much for joining me on this journey if you enjoyed the show please follow the show on apple spotify or subscribe on youtube thanks again and i'll see you on the next episode chris powers is the founder and chairman of ford capital lp all opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.